You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. So if you have a Bible or a digital device of some sort where you can see the Bible, I want you to open to two passages. We're going to kind of spend the majority of our time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and then we'll, we'll use that as a backdrop for Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, which is really just the story of uh, Jesus in Gethsemane. But I want you to be able to read Jesus' experience in Gethsemane against the backdrop of Philippians chapter 2. And I, I think by the end of this, um, you'll, you'll discover why, why that's important. So, the words will be on the screen. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Uh, we are going to first look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. And this is the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So I just want to camp in Philippians chapter 2 just just for a little bit. Because I think for you to appreciate the wonder and the mystery and the marvel of the Garden of Gethsemane and just why Jesus why Jesus was in agony and why he sweat great drops of blood. You, I think it's important to, to, to see that against the backdrop of this passage in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, is, this, this section here is, is viewed by many or understood by many scholars and theologians as to be an early church hymn. So they sang this. Uh, and and uh, Paul included this hymn in his letter to the Philippians. It's kind of like sometimes I'll, I'll quote a hymn or I'll quote a, uh, one of the praise songs that we sing at the end of my sermon sometimes. Well, it's kind of the same thing that he does here. And he does it 
for, for the point of just highlighting who this Jesus is. Like, like who is he? Well, he, he says, have this mind among yourselves. Well, well for, he, he uses this, this hymn as, a, as an example for the kind of humility that Christians should have towards one another and the posture they should have in the world. And so, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gets into this in verse 6. He gets into this, this, this thing here that is just it's, it's mind-blowing. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then he goes on, if that weren't enough. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Like, wh- what does that mean? It's, so so I have two points. They're not going to be on the screen. I just want to um, just share these with you. The first is that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. Uh, Paul, when he wrote Philippians, he wrote Philippians while in jail. I don't know. It's possible that he wrote Philippians uh, while he was waiting for a sentence of death. It could be that he wrote Philippians while under house arrest and then was later released, but he didn't know what the outcome of his life was going to, re- what this was going to result in. He didn't know if he was going to die or if he was going to be released. Early on in Philippians, he said, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so I, he, he, if you read through Philippians, what you'll notice is there's this theme of joy through, through this little letter from the first chapter to the last chapter. And uh, he says earlier in chapter 2, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then we get to this passage where he says, okay, this is what it looks like. It's the mindset that Jesus had. This is the mindset that you ought to have. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. It's something to be grasped. Now, if you were here last Sunday, I talked about the Trinity, and I talked about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and, how, and I focused on and emphasized Jesus as God the Son, that he is equal with God and uh, equal with the Father as one God. And here Paul says that, he, he, though he was in the form of God, I mean, though he was equal as God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word also means seized, to be seized. He didn't think, he didn't count it as something to be seized. So there are two words that I want to focus on. The one is seized, and the other is emptied. What does that mean? Um, he took on the form of a servant, even though he was God. And he didn't seize on his privilege as being God in taking on this form of a servant. The word for servant there is slave. That he was born in the likeness of men. That he, he there were a lot of other things he could have done and he didn't have to take on human flesh. He didn't have to be born of a virgin. He didn't have to do any of that. But he humbled himself as God the Son 
and took on human flesh, and he didn't seize his, his, his position as God or his place as God in the Trinity. He didn't seize on that. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh, and he, he didn't become less God. He remained God, but he, 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 he took on the form of a servant for the purpose of dying on a cross in our place. That's pretty staggering. The, the second word I just want to focus on is the word emptied. In verse 7, Jesus as the God-man and second person of the Trinity took on the form of a servant, of a slave, and when he emptied himself, he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't like get rid of some of his godness by taking on human flesh. That's not what is being talked about here. In fact, the word is used five times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul wrote, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's the same word. Like, clearly, like using eloquent words and trying to dress up the gospel doesn't empty the gospel of its power to transform lives. Paul's using it as a metaphor, as an example. Paul didn't mean, um, like when he said when Christ emptied himself, he did not empty out any part of his deity as God. For him to do so would mean that he would not be God. This is why the NIV, how many of you have the NIV? Right? So the NIV, actually, I, I like the way the NIV translates this verse. Rather, he made himself, speaking of Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Uh, one theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield said this. He said, there is no halfway house between the doctrine that Christ is both God and man and that Christ is merely just a man. Another person said this. Uh, a Jesus who is just less than God is like a bridge broken at the further end. Such a Jesus could not deliver from Satan and sin, and such a Jesus the Bible does not present. That by taking on the form of a slave, Jesus emptied himself in this sense, that by becoming a man he refused to hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives while on earth from birth to the cross. So that's the mystery of the incarnation. One theologian said this, for Christ to be our Savior, there was no other way than the way of the cross. God's righteousness demanded it, our sin required it, and Satan feared it. And so this is, this is what Paul's you know, highlighting here. So now we go back to the garden. The garden of Gethsemane literally means the olive press. And here we find Jesus praying he withdrew from the disciples, a stone's, a stone's throw away, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, Jesus is in conflict with, with God's, God the Father's will, and, 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 and so then Jesus just finally relents, and he, and he surrenders his will to the Father's will. But that's not what's going on here. He's staring at this cup, 
And this cup is, is a, this metaphorical cup is the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus, as the one who emptied himself by, by just refusing to use his, his right as, as the second person of the Trinity, he, he's staring at this cup and he knows what this cup means. It means that, it is, that he's about to experience the wrath of, of God the Father. He's going to experience the wrath of God Almighty. And so here he is staring at this cup. I mean, he even said it like throughout his life that he would have to drink this cup. In John 3, 16 and 17, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Like God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in, in, this path, in Luke chapter 22, and he's contemplating what it means for him to be given. It's not that he's contemplating it for the first time. He's just staring at that cup, and he knows what it means. He will have to drink the full cup of God's wrath that will result in him being hung on a cross, dying in your place and in my place. And, and his will is not in conflict with the Father's will. What you have here is when Jesus took on flesh, he, something happened in, the, in, in, his, in his nature that, that didn't exist before he was born of a virgin, and that is he took on human flesh, that he had a divine nature and a human nature, and they were married together. And here he is in the garden, and he experiences in the garden this great anxiety that results in these great drops of blood that he was sweating, because he knew that he was going to have to drink this cup. And, and what he's saying here in this prayer is, if there's no other way, my will is aligned with your will. And I know there's no other way, so nevertheless, not, not, I, I'm not going to cave to my anxiety. I am, I'm surrendered to your will. Uh, there's a theologian by the name of Gordon Fee said something I thought was pretty interesting and I just want to share it with you he said here is where the one who was equal with God has most fully revealed the truth about God and that is this that God is love and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice this is what he says what does that self-sacrifice look like cruel humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those he loves the divine weakness that is, death at the hands of his creatures and his enemies, is the divine scandal. The cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists, and now Jesus was about to endure that in the garden. He was contemplating that. And so he says, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's, the, here's, here's why we're here to reflect upon this, that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, entered the Garden of Gethsemane willingly and obediently. Like, Gethsemane literally means the olive press. He entered in willingly and obediently. He, he wasn't in conflict with the Father's will. He was in line with the Father's will. The cup that he was staring at is the cup that Isaiah 51 
Verse 17 refers to, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. And here you have Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's staggering. Why is he staggering? Because he's staring at this cup. And in this cup is a different kind of fruit. It's the fruit that is the result of our sin. It is the, the, the result of our sin, and it is the wrath of God that he must drink. The one man's trespass was the sin committed by the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. It, Romans chapter 5, this is an important passage, and verse 17 says this, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now listen, in case you lost all that, listen to this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's what Adam did in the garden, the first garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So you have, here, here I'm drawing it to a close now, this is the point. Here you have Jesus in a garden, and as you read in Luke chapter 22, your mind should go back to a previous garden, the first garden. There is the first Adam. Jesus is, is, is characterized as a second Adam. The first Adam was in a garden, and he rebelled against the Father, or he rebelled against God, and what did he do? He hid from God. The second Adam obediently enters into a garden, and, and he, he doesn't hide from God. Instead, he goes to his father and he says, here am I. So in the first garden, Adam sinned and Eve sinned and they hid from God and God entered into the garden and he asked Adam, where are you? Jesus enters into this other garden as the second Adam and he approaches the father and he says, here am I. I'm, I, I'm willing to do your will. I'm going to drink this cup. That is the result of Adam's sin. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, again, somebody said this, Adam, who being in God's image, considered his equality with God as something to be seized. Now, I don't have these on the screen. My manuscript will be available online, but I want you to hear this. Adam, who being in God's image, we are created in the image of God, the first Adam, considered his equality with God as something to be seized. He, the tempta what was the temptation? The temptation was from the serpent, if you eat this fruit that God said you shall not eat from or you will die, you will be like God, Adam. Adam said, that sounds pretty good. Let's see if my wife dies after she takes the first bite, and if she lives, I'll take a bite, and we'll be like God. And Jesus, as the second Adam, entered the garden to be seen by the Father. And, and, and Christ, as God, became a servant by being born in the likeness of men. Do you see the parallel and the irony here? This is, this is why this is, like the Garden of Gethsemane is so significant. After Adam's sin, he hid from God, as I said. God asked, where are you? Jesus, enter, Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane to be seen by the Father, and he says, here am I. The first Adam was called to manage the garden, while the second Adam was, was, you know, created the garden. The first Adam was given the responsibility to maintain 
the garden, while the second Adam is the one who sustains the garden and all of creation. The first Adam seized what he thought to be an opportunity to be like God out of arrogant pride, while the second Adam, as God, humbled himself by becoming a man. The first Adam was guilty for bringing the curse upon the world, while the second Adam took upon himself the curse of sin on a cross for you and for me in our place. And in so doing, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result of his death on a cross, Paul concludes with these words, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what you need to understand about those three verses is that this wasn't Jesus' prize. It wasn't... um, You humble yourself, and I will give you a trophy uh, that you have not had before, and that trophy is you'll be exalted. That's not what's going on here. I wish you could see this. (laughs) Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 23. And what he is doing here is he saying that Jesus, in emptying himself by resigning his rights to, to, to use his privilege as, the, as God, being equal with God the Father, from birth to the cross, then he was put in a tomb, and on the third day he rose from the grave. That's this coming Sunday. We'll talk about that. And then God highly exalted him. God the Father highly exalted him. Isaiah 45, verse 22 through 23, I want you to hear this. He says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah 45 is saying that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to Yahweh. And Paul is saying that after Jesus humbled himself to to the point of death, even death on a cross, he was put in that tomb and on the third day he rose from, from the grave and then enjoys everything that was already his today as the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Amen? Like That is the, that is a, the, the marvel and the mystery of, of, of Gethsemane. Here you have the second Adam entering into this garden on our behalf and he says, I will drink the cup I will drink the cup that is the result of Adam's sin. I will drink the cup that every single human being deserves to drink from, the cup of your wrath. I'm going to drink every last drop until there's nothing left for, on account of these sin-cursed humans to redeem them and to, to make them your people. And he did that. And he did it on the cross, and he validated that when he rose from the grave. That that is the message of Resurrection Sunday, right? 
I hope I didn't lose you through all this. <laughs> I, I know it was a lot. I wanted you to see it. I, I was commenting to somebody earlier, uh, to Sam earlier. I, thought, I said, I, I, I spent more time on this Good Friday message than uh, I was planning on. But I wanted you to see this because it sets the stage for Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, all is lost. We're cursed. Like there is no hope for the human race. There's no hope for creation if Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And he was God the Son. And only God the Son could do what he was able to do. There was only one qualified to drink from that cup. Not some creation, not some creature, but the creator, the one who sustains all things. And so that's what I want you to reflect upon. And uh, we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion together. Like the, te- the, the band's going to come up, right? Is that the, yeah. Um, and we're going to celebrate communion together. But I just want you to, 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 just to process that and to think about that. What Jesus accomplished on the, cro- you know, on the cross. In Gethsemane, he was staring at a cup, but not this cup. Not what this cup re- references or refers to. The cup of... Um, the cup of, uh, that we use for communion is a, is a, represents a cup that, was used, that, was drink, that they would drink from during the Passover meal. And um, Jesus held up the bread and he, he held up the cup and he said, this represents me. The bread represents his body. This is my body, he said. It's going to be broken for you. And... Um, and every time you gather together, I want you to remember my body that was broken for you. And so when you're ready, let's take and eat together. And then Jesus held up the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Like the, prophesy, the, the prophets prophesied about this cup. They said that there was this new covenant promise and that there would be a redeemer, there would be a savior, that God himself would make this new covenant promise a reality, that he would remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that he would circumcise your heart so that it would be able to love him and to beat for him and to respond to him and to obey him. Jesus held up that cup and he said, I'm inaugurating that, I'm making that happen. And I'm going to do it through the cross. And he said, so every time you gather together, I want you to drink and remember, remember me. Let's drink together. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.